0: Section 22 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Soul and Body, Part 4. The third plenitude of our Lord's soul was the fullness of his science. It must be remembered that we are not speaking of his omniscience as the word, but quite strictly of the science with which his human soul was supernaturally gifted, or which it had naturally acquired. It lies before us in theology as two vast kingdoms which we see as from a mountain in confused loveliness, but into whose recesses the eye cannot penetrate, and whose horizon we cannot explore. We cannot even descend from our point of view to examine the landscape more nearly. If we go lower down, it has disappeared altogether. It is like the view we may have often seen from a high hilltop, a banner of green and gold and blue unrolling under a flashing sun with the silver rivers striping it, and the purple ocean fluttering in the distant haze, as if it was a fringe. There is also a third kingdom which is shadowy and thin, as if it were but some images of the other kingdoms painted by the light upon the clouds, and moving there with indistinct outlines, as though it were a pageant rather than a possession. It is thus we may dare to picture to ourselves the science of our lord's human soul." There is first his beatific science whereby in every moment and from the first moment of his life he beheld the divine essence more clearly than all the heavenly hosts and went nearer towards comprehending God than the highest angels have done in their long ages of intuitive vision or will have done in the remotest epochs of eternity which we can intelligibly picture to ourselves. His soul did not comprehend God simply because such a comprehension is not within the compass of any possible creature. He saw more deeply into God, and he saw more in God, and what he saw, he saw more lucidly than any other of the blessed, and it is probable also that he saw it in a more perfect way, as well as in a more eminent degree. In every one of his mysteries, whether of joy, or sorrow, or glory, he possessed this science and beheld this vision, and in treating of the passion we shall have to consider those strange operations by which... In certain depths of woe this science was mysteriously turned off from the inferior part of his human nature. Thus the whole width of heaven's best beatitude was with him always. If it is true that eye cannot see, nor ear hear, nor heart conceive the blessedness of the baptized infant, deceased in its fresh sacramental innocence, how far must we be from anything like a just appreciation of the beatific science of the soul of Jesus, We may add figure to figure, it is true, but we are only losing ourselves all the while in painted splendours, such as sunset writes upon the countenances of the passing clouds. Of the next kingdom of his science we may know something more, but it is only as geographers know of lands they have not seen. Their brightest words are cold, and they hardly leave a picture on the soul. His infused science was his possession from the first, It was, as theologians say, infused into him in the first moment, because there was no reason why it should be deferred, neither is there any other time which for any cause could seem more congruous. By this infused science he surpassed all theologies and philosophies, all modern sciences and discoveries, and new sciences not yet dreamed of, and read all the secrets of angels and men, and all the griefs and wants, the exaltations and contentments of animals." Some theologians, and one of no mean fame, Hugh of St. Victor, have held that he knew things by an uncreated as well as a created knowledge. From this opinion higher authorities and the reason of the thing persuade us to dissent. It even seems more probable that he did not know by the infused science of his human soul all possible things, though of course he knew them as the word. This is the nearest approach to a limit which we dare to set to the infused science of his soul." We hold that it was infused into him in the highest manner of infusion. We hold with St. Thomas that by this infused science all presents, pasts, and futures lay clearly and unconfusedly and in infallible light before him, without effort or investigation, whether they be of natural or supernatural objects. By this science he knew without images, and therefore needed not the use of his senses to it, and so it was not suspended in his sleep. He knew all that he knew simultaneously without succession or development, because, as Vasquez acutely remarks, if it were not so, then ignorance might in some sense be imputed to him, at least at certain given moments. The species, to use the old scholastic word, by which he knew were more universal, or, to speak in modern language, his ideas were more real and absolute than those of the angels and accompanied by a more self-evidencing light, for his science was infused into him in proportion to his grace rather than his nature, which is an important principle to bear in mind throughout the whole of this subject. He saw things, moreover, as they are in themselves, and consequently in a loftier, nearer, more real and more divine manner. How beautiful, therefore, must all the physical sciences have been to his soul, thus seeing things down in their real beings, unbewildered by the fallacies of phenomena and unfatigued by the processes of induction. All knowledge was necessarily theology to him from this truthful method of his science. Thus there passed no shadow of ignorance over his soul, not the faintest or the most gauze-like veil of it so far as it is an intellectual imperfection and that, be it remembered, not because he saw all things as the word, but by the perfection of the infused science of his human soul. The third kingdom of his science comprises the knowledge he condescended to acquire, and of this we have spoken before. He knew nothing by acquisition, which he had not already known by infusion. He stooped to learn in a lower way what he knew before in a higher way, without learning at all. His acquired science is rather a revelation of his character than an addition to his glory. He would be more like us. He would know things in our way, and come to know them as we do. As he let the rain beat upon his face, and the wind play with his hair, and the lightning blind his eyes, and the thunder vibrate in his ears, so he let experience beat upon him, and what came of it was what we call his acquired science." HE WILL ALLOW HIMSELF TO RECEIVE THE IMPRESSIONS OF EXPERIENCE, NOT DECEITFULLY, BUT SILENTLY, AS FATHERS LET THEIR CHILDREN TELL THEM WHAT THEY KNEW BEFORE, AND OUT OF LOVE WILL NOT BACKEN THEIR FORWARDNESS BY DECLARING THEIR INTELLIGENCE TO BE NEEDLESS. THEY GIVE PLEASURE BY SEEMING TO LEARN. IT WAS IN SOME SUCH WAY THAT OUR LORD CONDESCENDED TO ACQUIRE KNOWLEDGE BY UNDERGOING EXPERIENCE. IT IS NOT SO MUCH A MATTER OF HIS MIND, IT IS RATHER ONE OF THOSE ATTITUDES WHICH REVEAL HIS HEART. He clings to all the imperfections of our nature to which he can decorously submit himself, even although they be not necessary to the grand work he has come to do. Or rather, it intimates to us how much more true a view of the incarnation we should take, if we could habitably think of the incarnation as itself his work, rather than of the work he did when he became incarnate, regarding this last but as a manifestation of the first. But in this matter of his acquired science we must never forget that theologians are agreed that he learnt nothing directly either from angels or men. They regard such an idea to be inadmissible because it is unbecoming to his dignity as head, master, teacher, and illuminator, both of angels and of men, and he filled these offices not simply as the word but in the human nature which he had assumed." The consideration of these plenitudes of his grace and of his science leaves us little to say of the fourth plenitude of his soul, the fullness of glory. Indeed, it is in its own self unspeakable. We may contemplate the glory of his soul either as it is in heaven now or as it was in the years of his childhood. Like his grace, because answering to his grace it lies before us in four regions of astonishing splendor, lost in light, yet cognizably differing from each other. There is, first of all, his beatific glory, which answers to his sanctifying grace. It is the world of his sanctifying grace, in the full bloom of its magnificence, and thus immensely surpassing in its radiance that grace which we have already seen to be marvellous. On no side is there any limit to be discovered to this country of beatitude. Its confines are lost beyond all the imaginable limits of which we have the power to dream. Its vast plains stretch onward and onward until the soul is wounded with gazing upon such outspread immensities of light. All we know is that it has limits somewhere. In our manner of speaking it is close upon infinite, and yet it is truly finite, finite to the eye of God, practically infinite to the thought of creatures." We need not linger to inquire of what multitudinous bright things this light is made, nor how piercingly bright each element of it is even in itself. Thoughts become dreams and dazzle us when we try to fix them on such a subject. Beyond those distant confines which our fancy has not reached, and yet also, as if by some play of light, represented inside the kingdom of his beatific glory, is his exemplary glory which answers to the heroic grace of the gifts of the Holy Ghost, It is this glory by which he is the pattern and model of all the glory of all glorified creatures. There is not an angel, but his glory, differing characteristically from the glory of all other angels, is, as it were, a drop of resplendent spray, flung from the mighty cataract of the glory of the soul of Jesus. Each saint is an orb of himself, a star, as St. Paul calls him. He is known by the light he gives, and can be named from the coronal he wears, and there is no other coronal in heaven like his. Yet he is but a beauty borrowed from the glory of Jesus. Each saint, each of the redeemed, each boy in heaven who had had the use of his reason for a month or two, has a sanctity with a character of its own, and that character is substantially expressed in the features of his glory. Perhaps each baptized infant may have one sort of natural character, rather than another upon which his future grace would have been grafted, and the glory won for him by the waters of the font may be allowed to fulfill that undeveloped sanctity, and given him a beauty of his own in heaven. This seems the more likely when we consider that seasons are never alike, and that he will at least have the full use of reason and of his own reason in heaven." The gestures, the tempers, the play of unreasoning children form a prophetic mirror on which their future good and evil are frequently depicted with minute fidelity. It is but a step further for glory to anticipate sufficient of the developed character to give a fashion to the radiance of the soul. The pattern of Our Lady's glory is taken from the glory of the soul of Jesus. She perhaps may represent all his glory upon a lesser scale. At all events he is the glorified soul, on the model of whom the glory of all spirits and souls has been moulded, and there is none comes so near to that magnificent exemplar as the soul of his own mother, Mary. In the countless darting splendours and innumerable refulgences of heaven, to which the little silver flashings of all the sunlit oceans are as nothing in their multitude, there is not one gleam, one play of light, which in its cause and pattern is not already visible from the throne of the sacred humanity. A third region of glory opens on our sight, his sovereign glory, which answers to the grace of headship. This is the glory of his human royalty. It is in this glory that he rules the whole creation of God. The manifold attributes of his kingship over the angels belong to this. The scepter with which he sways the empire of the redeemed is a ray of this brightness. The beautiful operations of his judicial power, exercised many times in a moment the whole world over, are illuminated and made worshipful by the shining of this glory. There is a moonlight even over purgatory, caught from the luminous mountains of this land. We know Jesus chiefly as our Saviour now, and he is endless in his loveliness, continually disclosing himself to us in new relations, and detaining our delighted love in new captivities. In heaven, without losing him as our Saviour, we shall see more of him as our King, and many an unsuspected grandeur and many an unimagined attraction will reveal themselves to us in his royalty. All this will be from the region of his sovereign glory." They who have an enthusiastic devotion to the church are at once meriting a share of this glory and anticipating it. But once more a fresh region of glory opens upon our sight. It is his glory of filiation which answers to the grace of union. It is here his glory seems to lose itself in the abysses of divine light and to merge in the lightnings of the Godhead. His Sonship is no mere adoption like that of the highest saints and of all glorified creatures. We shun the very word adoption when we speak of Him, lest we should seem to derogate from the immensity of His exaltation. Eternally the natural Son of God as the ever-begotten Word. He is also the natural and not the merely adopted Son of God as man, because of the union of His humanity with the person of the Word." This is the topmost pinnacle of his glory. We have nothing to do here but to be silent and adore. If from the courts of heaven we turn to the infant soul in Bethlehem, the same glory is already there, not only in its causes and its roots, but in its substance and possession. It has not to be achieved. It is already won. It lies in his grace, and his grace was ungrowing from the first. The vastness of his merits, and the marvellous series of the three and thirty years may deck it with some external ornaments, which would not else have shone there. But upon its substance they made little or no impression. It belonged to his soul, it was in his soul, when he lay upon his mother's lap. What are the triumphs of his church? What is the outward exaltation of his name? What even the multitude of glorified companions, whom he won for himself by his merits? compared with those interminable realms of glory which belong to him in his own right from the first. We have multiplied words not without the guidance of theology, in order that we might obtain some remotely worthy conception of our Lord's human soul. Let us look at it for a moment from one other point of view. Every creature has a worth of its own, with which its creator has mercifully enriched it. Yet it is more to us to know what his creator thinks of him than to know what he is worth himself." and it is not so much his own worth as God's love, which is the measure of the divine appreciation of him. Nevertheless, God's esteem of creatures becomes the creature's real worth, because it raises him to his own height. Let us think, then, of the divine complacency in the soul of Jesus, in order that we may thus understand its singular eminence in all creation. The Holy Trinity loved it more than all creatures put together. We could not doubt this for a moment without impiety. The Father has himself declared it from heaven. He rejoices in it as giving him room for the liberality of his gifts and space in which to mirror his own perfections. Everywhere else in creation, even in the vastness of sidereal space, his glory is cramped. The littleness of creation will not hold the grandeur he longs to put into it. But the soul of Jesus is a spiritual, superangelic heaven in which the sanctity of God can expatiate and reproduce itself in a created form not altogether unworthy of his magnificence. There is enough in that soul to form the joy of all creatures for ever. yet all that joy is from the love which God bears to it. The Holy Trinity broods over it in adorable delight, yet each of the divine persons also has his own complacency therein. Its natural sonship makes it unspeakably dear to the Father. His paternity is his own blessedness. So content is he with being the Father of the Son, that he never began begetting him, and never will desist, so dear to him is that unutterable mystery. But here is a second filiation of the same Son, accomplished in that miracle of the Incarnation, which contains and involves all his external glory, because it contains and involves all creation, And behold, as in return, the especial characteristic of the created sanctity of that dear soul is intense devotion to the Father's glory. The Holy Spirit loves that soul with a love peculiar to himself. It is in some special manner his own appropriate creation. He lingers over it with a dove-like complacency. He is forever drawn to it because of the abundance of his own gifts which it contains. To the word, who shall say how inexpressibly dear that soul must be, to which he has united himself with such an unparalleled union? We sink out of our depth the moment we enter upon the thought of the love between the person of the Son and the glad nature which he assumed. Hence it is that our devotion to the divine person of our Lord is always the measure of our devotion to his human soul, and Mary is the pattern to us of both these two devotions, which the fire of love soon melts and mingles into one. Such in the gorgeous creation of God is the human soul of Jesus. From his soul let us turn to his body. Let us consider it, first of all, in its relation to his soul. The body of man is a mystery which, on this side of the grave, we can never hope to comprehend. Admirable as are the things which philosophy or science can teach us of it now, They are as nothing to what the resurrection of the flesh will teach us hereafter. This is one of the reasons why the resurrection of our Lord is a mystery so dear to our devotions. We dare to regard it as a portrait of ourselves. We feel our bodies here on earth more than we feel our souls, and we come to love them more, and, almost unconsciously, even in spite of Christian mortification, we put them uppermost in our thoughts. We listen with awe to the accounts of the inward trials of the saints, not without sympathy but with less sympathy than awe. But our heart leaps up, as all hearts do, to the heroes who suffer corporal martyrdom. Jesus risen is what we are to be, what we are travelling towards, our pattern the earnest of our own transformation into its likeness, nay in itself containing the very living power by whose energy we shall be transformed. Our whole frame is sown with wonderful possibilities. Roots of glory are embedded in it everywhere. Every pore of it may be a new sense under other circumstances. It can put on immortality, it can clothe itself in more than solar light, it can compass worlds in its mature agility, it can rival spirit in its amazing subtlety. If all this is true of all the bodies of the just, what must be said of the body of Jesus, the cause, the model, the sovereign, the very food of our bodies? Its relation to his soul is not therefore to be lightly thought of. His body was itself a beautiful creation, a world of wonders, a masterpiece of God. It has been the greatest and most energetic power in the history of the world. It was the instrument of creating the world over again and its sufferings have shaped the destinies of every man that has been born into the world. It was necessary to our Lord's soul in order to complete his human nature. The hypostatic union could not have been accomplished without it. While the momentary separation of his body and his soul was an awful mystery involving the very accomplishment of our redemption, their permanent separation would be an imperfection and a dishonor. Neither was our Lord's body a clog to his soul, as ours is, enfeebling its grasp, shortening its reach, obstructing its sight and hindering its aspirations. It was to him an additional power of sanctity, an additional breadth of life. The soul loved it for many reasons, but perhaps for none so much as its being the special instrument of suffering, and so enabling the soul to quench, if not wholly yet with fearful copiousness, the thirst for suffering with which it was inflamed, and which it declared at the last moment to be still unsatisfied upon the cross. Moreover, his body was that portion of his nature for which he put himself directly in debt to Mary, and while this was another source of the love which he bore it, the immense exaltation of his mother is also a measure not only of his love of his body, but of its place and dignity in the creation of God. His body also heightens the mystery of his assumption of a created nature because it brings him lower down into creation, even among material things. This makes his condescension the more wonderful, and his embrace of the universe the more complete. There would be a sadness and a forlornness in the exile of matter from the hypostatic union, which it is now difficult for us to calculate, so entirely has the opposite and most consolatory fact grown into our minds and become part of ourselves." infinitely loving as it would have seemed, how much less touching, benignant, pathetic would the mystery have been had the word taken to himself an angelical rather than a human nature? How different would all our theology have been, and how unspeakably different our idea of God? Banished to the confines of his creation, in what a region of cold and darkness should we have wandered, where the fires of his central throne would scarce have warmed us, whether left to the punishment of our sins or contented with some poor natural beatitude, or, if saved by his grace, on such other terms of intimate love and glad familiarity from those on which we are now, when the dear angels seem strangers in heaven rather than ourselves. By the body also the soul of Jesus has, in some sense, learnt new things, and now enjoys peculiar pleasures through it, and gains especially the multiplied presence of the blessed sacrament. Moreover, it has an independence of the soul, which is a part of its relation to it, for it has its own immediate union with the word. It has not been assumed through the soul, but separately, and in itself, so that when the soul left the body on the cross, the body was still united to the person of the word, and dead as it was, claimed absolute worship and all other divine honors." It is entitled to a separate worship of its own, and its divine union was in no wise impaired by the absence of the soul. Surely then it must be with intense reverence that we draw near the infant body of our Lord to gaze upon it not with a careless curiosity, but with adoring love, and a wonder which for his honour longs to become more and more intelligent. He tells us his whole heart at first sight, for he lies before us in all the littleness of an infant he is not full-grown as Adam was. Though he was to be the second Adam, while he was in reality the first Adam, before Adam, the type of Adam, and not Adam his type, nevertheless he will be unlike Adam, rather than forego any shade of humiliation which he can obtain by being but as one of Adam's children. He will have a mother like the rest of us. He will owe his flesh and blood to another as we do, He will surrender the privilege of being fashioned immediately by God's own hand, as Adam was. He will be little and helpless and hampered by all the incommodities of infancy, because, although he is in that way less like Adam, he is more like us and participates deeper down in our dishonours. Thus it is that everything he does tells us all about him. Every shifting attitude in each of his mysteries is a breathing place to relieve the immense love of his sacred heart. In this sweet choice of infant stature he reveals his character and supplies us with a new motive of happy confidence. We must consider also the exquisite delicacy of his body. It was formed by the Holy Spirit and bears upon its workmanship the marks of that divine person's peculiar complacency. It was formed out of Mary's purest blood, in which the pulses of sin had never beaten, upon which the kingdom of darkness had never had so much as the shadow of a claim, but which had stood from the first in the broad light of God's choicest grace. His precious blood was a beautiful emanation from a fountain already incomparably beautiful in itself because of its exceeding purity. All the works of God are faultless in their fitness, whatever other imperfections it may be his good pleasure to leave, as if inevitably attaching to their created nature. Now the body of Jesus was created a fit dwelling for his soul, and we have seen already how great the dignity of that soul was in the esteem of God. It was formed also to suffer exquisitely in order to accomplish the great work of our redemption. Hence its sensibilities were quickened and refined, and all its capabilities of feeling rendered delicate and active and rapid and acute, with the power of communicating thrills of an intensity which we could hardly comprehend. It was, in these respects, like no other human body that ever was. If we could have seen it as it really was in itself, we should have been both amazed and terrified to see a vessel of such heavenly fragility moving about among the coarse forms and in the jarring complexities of common earthly life. Neither must we forget that it was formed also to bear, without breaking, impetuous torrents of glory. That little infant frame, white as a snowdrop on the lap of winter, light almost as a snowflake on the chill night air, smooth as the cushioned drift of snow which the wind has lightly strewn outside the walls of Bethlehem, is at this moment holding within itself, as if it were of adamantine rock, the fires of the beatific light, the stupendous ocean of the mighty vision, the gigantic play of eternal things that come and go and live within its soul, A person, omnipotent and infinite, sits within those white walls of fleshly marble, and they do not even vibrate with the marvellous indwelling. End of section 22